Welcome to my passion project, the Bold Flavors Podcast. I'm Timo, founder and CEO of Gusto. At Gusto, our vision is to be the most loved way to eat dinner and we're currently delivering over 1 million meals every single week in the UK. We are a data company that loves food and we are customer and culture obsessed. From every episode, you can expect in-depth conversations on leadership, what makes a person tick and scaling businesses. Since starting Gusto in 2012, I've spoken with so many amazing, inspirational and talented people who have shaped my thinking. This podcast is about sharing some of these experiences with you. My guest today is Aaron, the hugely successful founder and CEO of Bloom and Wild. Aaron studied in Oxford and Harvard and worked at Bain, so he's clearly incredibly smart. In 2013, he quit his well-paid job in consulting to start the company. On the journey of scaling Bloom and Wild, his true north has always been customer obsession, creating the virtuous circle of high NPS score powering the business. In this episode, Aaron will speak about why he initially didn't want to be an entrepreneur like his dad, how he applied the consulting toolbox to running the company, and how customer obsession powers everything. Aaron, I love your product and customer obsession. But before we talk about Bloom and Wild and scaling the company, I'd love to hear where you grew up. Sure. I was born in France. Uh, my mum is from Israel. My dad's from Australia. And they brought me up uh, speaking English, which uh, meant fitting in at nursery school, which was in French, was a challenge. So a <laughs> um, bit of a mixed bag. And then uh, when I was five, my parents had separated and I moved uh, to the UK uh, just with my mum and I uh, grew up here from then on and tried to navigate my way to fitting into a new country and figuring out how stuff works and how to make friends, uh, things like that, uh, all of which had quite a big impact on, on the career direction I've taken since. In what way? I think when you try and fit in somewhere new in the formative stages of your life, you can end up seeking a lot of validation and really trying to sort of go out of your way to please people to get them to accept you. And that's, uh, that's certainly how I, I felt that I was uh, when I was at primary school, all the way through high school and actually into, into my early jobs. And I think that sort of obsession with trying to do the right thing by people, partly because I'm, I think a kind person, but partly because I thrive on that validation that I think came from the sort of change of uh, settings uh, in my childhood to me towards the flower business, which is a business where you really live and die by feedback more than, more than in many others. I think people are trusting, they're not spending huge amounts of money with you, but they're trusting you with the expression of their emotion and if you do a good job, then they lavish you with praise, which is very rewarding. If you do a bad job, and um, which you sometimes do in our industry because we're, we're sending a perishable product and there can be quality problems which are impossible to completely eradicate and you rely on third-party delivery companies who also can, um, can be unreliable. So if you do a bad job, you really hear about it. And I think what I found is that I'm very motivated by that positive feedback and I'm also very sort of, I take it personally when we get negative feedback, it still really stings even sort of nearly eight years into the business. And I think that that all connects back to my 
desire for that validation that I experienced early in life. Wow. Okay. And um, do you still have family living outside the UK? All my family are outside the UK. My mum went back to Israel when I went to university. My dad has actually um, settled in Israel as well later in life. Um, so he's there as well now, but still separated from my mum. Um, and I have a half-sister who's in Sydney. So nobody in, in the UK apart from obviously my wife and, and children and then um, in-laws. Oh, I didn't know that. That's that's incredible. And do you feel like that kind of diversity in thinking has, has shaped you? I think so. I think we're, we're building a British brand, but we're, we're also increasingly building an international brand. And I think there's, in order to build a, a British first brand, which we definitely are, I think it's easier if you have been in this country for a long time and you know, understand, especially the way consumers think about stuff. But then I think having uh, that more global perspective and realizing that there's an opportunity beyond the UK in order to, to build a, a really large-scale business um, is important too. So it's hard to sort of pin down factors, but I like to think it makes a difference. When was the first time you kind of felt like, you know, business or leadership or entrepreneurship is for you? Um, did your parents influence you? My dad is an entrepreneur and both my granddads were entrepreneurs as well. So to an extent, yes. My dad's had his ups and downs um, with entrepreneurship. He started his first business when he was 19. He dropped out of university because he just wanted to get started, even though he was pretty academic. And over the years and over my childhood, there were sort of moments of real ups where he was doing really well. And then there were moments where things didn't go well and um, our family was worried about money. So, you know, we sort of, I lived as a child through um, both ends of the spectrum of entrepreneurship. And I think that made it appeal to me, but it also made me see some of the pitfalls in it as well. And it made me not want to do what he did and start out as young as I possibly could and instead to, to get more of a safety net. So after I went to university and, and got a degree and then, Actually, a few years later, I ended up getting an MBA as well. And I, I worked in consulting for about eight years. So I think some of uh, what I saw with his uh, sort of downs as well as ups made me both want to be an entrepreneur and try and sort of achieve those ups, but also be aware of some of the challenges that can come with it and try to give myself both a sort of like, you know, some form of uh, financial safety net before starting, but also a career safety net that uh, would be there in case it didn't work out and some sort of formal skills and training that would hopefully be useful when I did start out. So you studied in Oxford. What did you study? I studied French and German language and literature. So I, uh, I, did, uh, I did French, German and Latin and maths, my A-levels, and really loved uh, other languages, learning to speak them, the, the sort of internationalism of it and the opportunity to go and live abroad in another country per what we talked about a few minutes ago. And I love the idea of combining the sort of privilege and, and tradition of being able to do a degree at Oxford with the ability to go away and work for a year in the middle and do so living in a foreign country, which is not something that you can typically do with an Oxford degree. And, and it was fabulous. I spent a year when I was 20 living in Paris and working at a technology company, actually, which is where I started to learn about technology and become interested in that, and then returned to, to Oxford and finished my degree. And I thought I'd uh, worked using my languages, and actually I really haven't. My, my career has been almost entirely English-speaking. 
but we have expanded Bloom and Weld into France and Germany, and it has been beneficial. I'm no longer fluent in either language, but I, I have a good understanding still, and it's certainly been helpful having that language familiarity, but also some cultural context and familiarity about these two markets that we've uh, expanded into. So it's turned out to be somewhat relevant at least. And what was your first job after uni? I went into management consulting. I worked at what was then a small, but is now a decent sized firm called OCNC, which works mainly with companies in the retail consumer and tech sectors and also with private equity firms and worked really hard for three years, uh, got a good grounding, especially having come from a, a sort of non-business educational background in just general business and analytical skills, how to think about uh, company and financial performance and um, strategic considerations and also things that stand in good stead for any job, how to sort of frame problems analytically, how to present a story in order to persuade somebody of something in the business context and communicate that concisely and efficiently. And all of those things, I think, are helpful, whatever you go on to do, and certainly helpful in the, in the early days of uh, getting a company set up. And then you decided to do an MBA and moved to Harvard. I, I was lucky to, to get a place at, at Harvard for the MBA and it felt like a, a unique opportunity. So I went there for two years. I never really planned to live in America. And I applied to Harvard thinking it was a long shot and got in. And uh, the opportunity was too good to pass up. And, and I had a brilliant time. I thought that America wasn't going to be for me, but actually I made brilliant friends, um, both uh, American friends and then um, it's quite an international program to people from uh, countries all over the world to, you know, and I've stayed in touch with a really good number of those people. So, so that was, uh, that was excellent. Why, when I was there, there was obviously a summer in the middle where, which was the opportunity to try out a different type of work. And I actually came back to London and worked at Google, which was really interesting. Google was um, already big, but uh, certainly not as big as it was now. And it's really interesting to see it, the, maybe the world's most famous uh, technology scale up from the inside and, and some of how they do things. And there's lots that, that I saw there. There's the early days, for example, of them developing the system of OKRs, which is now something that I think most fast uh, growing businesses use. So really interesting to sort of see how that worked early on, for example. And then after business school, I stayed in consulting, but I wanted to have the opportunity to work in a broader range of sectors and also to be able to work outside the UK and to have the opportunity to, to work in the US as well, having uh, spent two years there and, and really got a lot out of it. So I moved firms and went to work at Bain Company and actually ended up um, continuing to specialize mainly in retail consumer technology, so similar to OCNC, and also to spend nearly a year um, working in their Silicon Valley office, which got me much closer to technology and also to um, some of what was going on entrepreneurially. That was uh, back in uh, 2011. So when, you know, I guess uh, the scene was already already pretty um, developed in Silicon Valley, but perhaps not to the same extent that it was now. So it was interesting to sort of uh, be immersed in that outside of work and, and see what people were doing and how it all worked. And that certainly was another step in my, my journey towards trying to start something myself. What did you learn about the culture at Bain and how did it influence you? I think Bain is an outstanding organization of culture creation. And, and the way I, I measure that is that it's a tough job. Like you work really hard, you're, you're well paid, but you're 
for how hard you work, you're not that well paid. And there are a lot of other um, jobs out there where you can probably do similar work and be better paid or work less hard. Yet people love working at Bain. The employee net promoter score is extremely high and people who work there tend to be very strong advocates of it. It comes top and um, you know every year in all sorts of surveys all around the world and um, for a great place to work. And you know that, that's super impressive that they've created that. And I think the the secret source is really careful and sort of recruiting and figuring out who's going to fit in and who's going to sort of making sure that they're hiring people that other people who work there are going to enjoy working with so that it becomes a place where even though you're spending a lot of your time there, you enjoy spending your time there because you enjoy the people and um, in whose company you are. And so um, although you're working, it doesn't feel like um, as much of a sort of like chore to be in the office that much or to be away at a client that much. And I, I think the, there are a few lessons from that. One is the the overall sort of need to invest in culture and then and to invest in sort of attracting and retaining the right sorts of people who be culture creators and make culture strong and then also to to create a way of working where you you know there's a, a phrase that Sarah Bain used in recruiting which I remember um which is we take our, our work seriously but we don't take ourselves seriously and it's true people um people work on really important topics that can have important um impact on the the future of the clients that we were um, serving but people did it in a light-hearted way they formed good relationships with clients and they formed good relationships with each other and i think that it's not ne- it's not necessarily necessarily the case that just because you're working on something that has high impact and is important that you need to do so in a way that's um, sort of serious and humorless and um, and not joyous for, for the people doing the work and i think Bain really cracked that and um, made it its, its norm in how we worked and then uh, hired and, and grew people and recognized people to, to keep that the, the case. And, and that's certainly something that I took with me as I set up my own organization and culture. And on that note, why did you quit your well-paid job then? I think you quit uh, in 2013 to start Bloom and Wild. What, you know, what, what was going on in your head and how did you think about it back then? A few things. I think first I'd always wanted to try and start something, you know, my childhood, my dad, my grandparents, um, and, and it was a question of when it would be the right time to try. I think it felt like the right time to try on a number of fronts. I, I'd worked a decent amount of time. I paid off my business school debt, so I was in a position financially where I could afford to take the risk, but then on the other hand, I wasn't uh, married yet. I didn't have a family yet, and it felt like maybe that would be a better time to take a risk than in a few years' time. Sounds very familiar. Second, well, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's familiar in our community. I think um, additionally, I was getting increasingly excited both by the general environment and by the specific opportunity. On the general environment, lots of people were building um, you know, digitally uh, native brands um, you know, that were heavily using technology to try and, and create better customer experiences and achieve rapid growth in all sorts of sectors. And I, I was a customer of many of these brands. I thought that what they're doing was really innovative and interesting. And, and it made me feel that I wanted to, to be part of that and have that career experience as well. And that this was the time. I then think that I, you know, as I started to think about the flower category, it felt like there was a really a real opportunity to try and take on the, the category and create a better experience, but that if we weren't going to do it, then somebody else would. And so 
I was sufficiently, I don't think you can ever be 100% certain whether your idea is the right idea or not, and those ideas change uh, regularly over the, the evolution of a business, but I was sufficiently convinced that it had legs and it felt like it was worth trying, and, and so that prompted me to do so. And then finally, just with, uh, with Bain, again, they were very supportive, so I'd achieved a promotion a year before where I committed to work another year, so um, it felt like I'd sort of... Uh, met my commitment to them, which was part of the reason why I felt like I could do so. And I think because I'd done that, they were very um, supportive of me. So they actually gave me a sabbatical to um, start working on something and said that I could return to work there if, if it turned out that my idea wasn't successful. And then they extended that a couple of times. Actually, they held my job open for um, nearly 18 months um, wow. after I left. And, you know, that was... Um, that was a huge, again, safety net, I guess, also given some of my risk aversion that I, I had from my upbringing, feeling that I could try and do it, but that if it didn't work, then um, there'd be something to go back to. Wow, that's really powerful, okay. And how um, how were the early days? It's pretty hard work at the beginning, again, I'm sure you'll say Sam. I'm sure, familiar. yeah. Um, you know, I think at, um, in a consulting firm, when, you, you know, when you're sort of like whatever, in some way up the, the ladder, you um, you work really hard, but you have a lot of creature comforts. You have uh, a team around you that you can um, you can delegate tasks to. You have, um, I had an um, assistant who would uh, sort of, uh, you know, organize travel and, and things like that for me, which was um, really helpful. I had my own office. So, uh, you know, things were like, it was quite a comfortable working setup. And then I guess to, to go from that to, uh, you know, to literally having to do every single thing by yourself to the being mm -hmm. a to-do list with like thousands of items on it. And I'm very sort of to-do list making person. So my to-do list is literally like, you know, tens and tens of pages of just stuff that I thought we could do to improve the company. You know, you, you have neither the time despite working literally you know, every hour of the week, nor the skill set in many cases, nor the sort of like financial resources to acquire the skill set uh, and to do many of these things. And then, it's frustrating you're you're sort of like a perfectionist with high standards and you're used to working hard and getting stuff done and now you're working even harder and you're not getting stuff done and you know i, I think that um that general environment which persisted for the first couple of years and which you know many other founders that i speak to you know say resonates with them um it's challenging and then there are like you know specific mistakes that people make along the way i think you know the one that um that i always think about which um uh, which was, um, you know, like really sort of like upsetting at the time. And we were, we were trying to create the first um, Lumen World box, so you know, letterbox, uh, flower box. And we were working with a, a, a box manufacturer in Southeast London that produced samples for us. And he was charging us uh, nearly £30 uh, for a sample mm -hmm. per box, um, you know, which is like, a lot of money and you know we, we were funding the company out of our own savings my co-founder and i and, you know and this was um, a significant thing 30 pounds for every box so we and um, we asked our and um, our box manufacturer if we could um, reduce the price and said well if you order more i'll reduce the price he said if you order a thousand boxes from me then i uh reduce the price to two pounds 70 per box so it'd be two thousand seven hundred pounds and we'd been through three or four samples so we thought we'd um figured out what the final box would, would be like that the company would use going forward. And so we ordered a um, thousand boxes for, for the £2,700, which is a pretty meaningful percentage of the Huge, yeah. sort of savings that we put into starting the company. So this was like a, not a decision to be taken lightly. 
And so pre-launch, we had our thousand boxes got um, got delivered to um, the space that we've been um, renting by the hour for, um, you know, to, to try and um, post out sample boxes of flowers. And we'd actually lined up 20 um, business customers. And I'd, um, I'd spent a week, I think, knocking on doors of businesses, asking people if they wanted to try a new service and saying that I'd send them the first box for free. And it's, um, it, it was actually hard to even persuade somebody to, you know, to accept some flowers for, flowers for free. But... Uh, but I did with 20 businesses. We sent the, the 20 boxes of flowers to the 20 businesses that I'd found. And, and then I called them up uh, the next day to see what they thought of them. And all 20 of them said that the flowers um, had arrived moldy. And it turned out that the flowers um, had all developed a disease called botrytis, which is a form of mold that um, appears on certain types of flowers and they're left unventilated. And our, um, our thousand boxes didn't have any ventilation holes in them. So um, <laughs> oh, all no. the flowers are developing these diseases. So the remaining 980 boxes um, that we'd uh, spent £2,700 on were um, were of no use to us. And it was a super expensive mistake to make in the, um, you know, in the context of the amount of money that we had available. Um, and I think we, um, we were trying to, um, to run before we could walk and we sort of figured that there couldn't possibly be further iterations on this box. And, um, you know, we needed to sort of achieve good unit economics because that's what we sort of like, you know, had been told that we needed to do to get our, our startup working. So we, we couldn't carry on paying £30 a box. And actually, you know, it'd be much better to carry on paying £30 and to, to pay £2,700 for um, boxes that were when we we're still in a sort of like iteration and learning um, phase. So um, that has uh, certainly stuck with me. Wow. Okay. And when did you think this is really working? I remember it was our first Mother's Day, um, which is the biggest week in the year. I actually didn't realize at the time. I thought Mother's Day and Valentine's Day were about the same size, and Valentine's Day turned out not to be that big for us. And Mother's Day came a few weeks later, so this was um, about nine months after we'd launched. And I used to process all of the orders manually through this sort of spreadsheet, which had like some download uh, orders out of the computer system, and then it would like reprocess them into a different format and we'd send them to our um, fulfillment center and um, but there was quite a lot of sort of like manual intervention required and I downloaded the orders but for that week and there were a thousand orders and you know it took me um, a day and a half to process them in my spreadsheet where I'd previously been processing you know a fraction of that and so it takes like a sort of like manageably short process and and it felt crazy that um, you know, our company had you know had been going for for less than a year, but we um, you know we, we hadn't raised a lot of money. We just raised um, a small amount of um, seed funding from angel investors that we networked with, and um, and were able to generate a thousand orders um, without really having any digital marketing budget. This is mainly word of mouth and people um, having heard about the company and thinking it was a good concept. So at that point, I thought um, you know maybe we're onto something with Letterbox Flowers. I mean, the custom, the company has always like really amazed me in the sense that you've always been hugely customer focused. I love the reviews, the ratings obsession. How do you think about customer centricity and how, how does it power the business today? And I guess back then. Yeah, it's always been really central. So um, I think it was implicitly central and then it, uh, it became explicitly central when we um, codified our values, which we did nearly five years ago um, as a team of, um, I think we were a team of about 20 people at the time. Um, we came up with five values, um, care, pride, delight, customers first and innovation. And we've never changed them. They remain really central and almost sort of sacred to how we do business. I think there's a universal, 
people disagree on all sorts of stuff, as you'd expect among the you know decent I've seen now, but there's a universal and um, sort of respect for and attempt to adhere to these values, and people always call each other out when we're we're not doing so. So uh, I think that sort of codification was important, but actually it started long before that. We were always really keen to collect as many reviews as possible and to make that a sort of like central part of our flow, partly because we um, we thought we were doing a good job. And so um, being able to advertise um, to people that this new company was getting uh, better reviews than, than our peers in the industry was um, was valuable for sort of like building confidence and trust, which is super important in our category, obviously important in many categories, but I think, it, you know, more so than in ours than in some others, because um, we're in this business of uh, helping people express their emotions. And so they want to trust that whoever they're outsourcing the expression of emotion to is going to do a good job. I think we then, um, again, this is like maybe something that I really took away from Baines, we became really obsessed with net promoter scores and metric, and we, um, we made a real North Star metric, which is something, it's a, it's a Bain developed metric, and Bain works a lot with clients on um, building net promoter score into their processes and decision making. So that's something that I took away, and we started measuring it, and then we invested in software that was really helpful, um, both for sort of automating the measurement of it, for segmenting the feedback that we're getting from it. So we have, we work with a business called Chattermill that um, which we work with them, um, you know, for many years. And actually, I think we were one of their first clients and, and Chattermill will read uh, review uh, ratings and comments people write and it will um, sort of uh, group them by what the type of feedback is, whether it's positive or negative. So if you say, you know, my um, uh, sunflowers arrived um, a bit wilted, but then picked up after a couple of days, um, it will know how to group that into a sort of condition on arrival complaint, then a recovery um, based on natural language processing. So stuff like this is really helpful because we don't just sort of get a score, but we we get feedback that we can then aggregate to um, rapidly make corrective um, changes or to lean into things which seem to be resonating particularly with customers. And then we can, this obviously matches our database, we can then... Um, associate feedback with things like um, obviously different product types, but also um, different carriers that we work with to understand whether they're working well or not. And with uh, different ordering codes, we have so if somebody used our app versus um, our website and stuff like that. So then we can understand, and, you know, down to the specific version of the app somebody used, so then we can understand if there's um, maybe, you know, expectations aren't being met, then we can, for like a particular group of customers, then we can trace it back to we made a change in the app, which meant that we eliminated a step that would have been um, uh, explain that and now we're not explaining this as well and um, so we can we can change it back so I think having this as a really central part of our business system that people are consulting and that we're sort of permanently working on with a view to improving that promoter store but but really sort of drilling into wherever it gets worse and correcting it has been super valuable for continuing to drive it up and embracing it. Our net promoter score now is 90, which is, um, you know, unbelievably high. It's higher than every business in the, oh, um, in the Fortune 500. Um, and, you know, we're super proud of that and we want to, we want to get it to 100. And I think if we, if we think back to the mission of, of Bloom and Wild as a business, and, um, you know, our purpose is to, to make sending and receiving flowers the joy that it should be. And, we think it should be a joy. People are expressing emotions and there are over a billion flower transactions that take place every year. And across the industry from where measurement is available, it seems like the industry average net promoter store is a little bit above zero. So people are only marginally more likely to um, recommend um, their 
flower buying experience and they are to actively complain about it. And for a business that exists with expression of emotion, that's atrocious. And I think if we can take those and um, this billion zero NPS moments and turn them into 100 NPS moments, then, you know, that's something that makes our existence worthwhile. So that's why we care about it. Wow. So you're creating the virtuous circle of high, you know, NPS score and high retention and high referrals. Um, that's amazing. And talk me through how the team has scaled since 2013. In uh, 2013, it was just me and my co-founder Ben for the first uh, few months, and then we hired our first uh, our first two other people to do marketing and to do customer delight. Interestingly, the first person we hired um, to be our marketing manager is still with us now. Um, so she's been with us for seven years. Um, her name's Kirsty. She's now actually our head of customer experience and is the owner of our um, our net promoter score metric, which I've just been talking about. And I think the fact that she's been in the business from virtually day one and just has this deep knowledge of every touch point and, and every part of what we do has been um, super valuable for her in becoming the, the custodian of something that's so central to what we do. And um, anyway, the team has scaled um, since then. Um, our team now um, is around 130 people in our, you know, now virtual obviously, but um, previously uh, head office, um, which is um, in South London. And then we, also recently opened um, a small fulfillment center um, in the, um, near Dortmund, um, which is where we fulfill our journey business. So we have a team of about 15 or so people working there as well. And that's, um, you know, that's been quite interesting sort of um, thinking culturally about how to extend our culture from our head office into a warehouse environment and how to um, sort of Great, the same excellence, and uh, and we learned a lot from uh, a visit to the Gusto factory as well as we think about that process. So thank you for that. I'm glad um, to hear. Yeah, and do you have teams in France and Germany on the ground? No, we don't. So we run our German and French businesses from the UK, which, with the exception of the German fulfillment operation, but from a, a sort of like customer service operations and marketing perspective, we run it from the UK with a a team of native German and French speakers based in London. And we, we decided to do that because we've chosen to build relatively small country teams and to try and um, get as much um, sort of like process uh, harmonization across countries as possible. We're planning um, launches into um, a number of further countries over the next year as well. And I think the more countries you get into, the more important it is to try and standardize as many things as possible. Otherwise, it becomes very difficult to manage this track of um, you know, what technology features you've implemented in each market and what things you've up remembered to update from a merchandising perspective, things like that. So having a, a sort of like centralized system um, of best practices and, and tools is really important. Um, there's obviously things that need to be um, customized locally and um, both from a language perspective, but also in terms of um, flower range, in terms of marketing efforts, partnerships, brand building and things like that, where that sort of local knowledge is important. So we think having people who are from the country or um, native speakers of the language with a you know, good cultural awareness of the country and um, running those businesses is important. But we think the benefit of them being able to collaborate with our central teams outweighs the, the need to be um, in market. And, you know, it's interesting actually with the, uh, the shift to remote um, that we've obviously gone through um, during COVID because you know, I guess on the one hand, um, that really shows that people can be anywhere. And so, you know, we don't need um, our France team to be in France. On the other hand, it also shows that um, 
we maybe don't need the France team to be in London working side by side with the, the people that they need to collaborate with in our central teams because everybody's uh, remote now anyway, so it doesn't really make a difference if you're in the same country or not. So that's been food for thought. And I think as we think about scaling our international operations further, uh, that will be a, a factor that we hadn't previous, previously considered when we were much more physically bound um, to our home office um, in London. What have you learned about running high-performance teams? My natural working style is uh, quite um, detail-oriented and I, I have a high standard and a desire to, to control a lot of stuff. And I think that, that worked well. Well, maybe I mean, that worked well, but it worked well in terms of like going for good outcomes in the early days. And you know, the business has got to a, a stage now where I can't, um, I can't be across everything, and nor should I be. Um, I've got great leaders that are, uh, in every case, better than me at the function that they run, and, and that's really important. And I think having sort of achieved that and built out a team of people that I genuinely do trust, I'll challenge them on, on stuff that they're doing, but I trust them, and I think that their judgment is, is really strong in their areas means that um, we can be sort of multiplicative in our efforts and we almost have um, you know, a group of leaders um, running um, functions or areas, all of whom are doing a great job and who um, work effectively to collaborate and well with each other. And that means that you can go from a group of people that one person that you trust, I guess, you know, yourself to begin with, has the capacity to manage to and a team size that um, a number of people that you trust collectively have the capacity to manage it means that you can do more things in parallel and you can try more ambitious things that require more complexity, more specialized skill sets um, and more cross-functional work. And that's, um, you know, getting to that point has been um, you know, one of the big uh, focuses of the, you know, the recent chapter, the last 12, 18 months or so. And how do you think about the board? I think our board is relatively big for um, for a business of our, our size, but you know everybody has a good reason to be there. I think um, the the board has a few roles. I think partly it's uh, it's the way that the investors uh, are able to influence the direction of the company to understand what's going on, to participate in key decisions, to have access to to senior management figures in the company, and to be able to understand how they're doing and what they're thinking on and input into their areas. I think partly it, to excuse the sort of repetition of word, but it plays a sounding board role on um, just thinking about some of the big direction, big direction decisions that the company needs to make. And, you know, it's a group of people that aren't in the, in the day-to-day that between them have got different sets of experiences. We have, um, we have three people that represent our three um, main institutional investors, but then My co-founder remains on our board and there are a couple of other people um, on the board as well. And I think uh, having that variety of perspectives from people who are doing um, a number of different roles and and have seen over uh, typically longer careers than mine, a number of different ways that companies do or don't succeed has been um, really important in keeping my and my team's confidence that we continue to go in the right direction. Do you have any tip for you know, creating really valuable decisions or discussions at board level? A few tips for that. I think we've been disciplined about setting board agendas a long time in advance, which then makes people sort of understand where each board meeting fits into a series of board meetings and the strategic agenda for our business for the year. So we 
we agreed um, our broad agenda for um, for 2020 at the start of the year. Obviously, we've um, we've amended it as we've gone along. So we didn't know there was going to be a pandemic when we when we did that, which is the most obvious example. And that's obviously impacted board dialogue. Um, that's obviously impacted board dialogue both um, about the pandemic itself, but also the impact that it has on on the other topics that were on our board agenda. So it's important to re- retain flexibility. But I think sort of having clarity about the business's strategic narrative and what the big decisions that we'll need to take are, how those connect to the key and things that will uh, make the business succeed or not succeed, and then being structured about giving appropriate focus to each one over um, a decent period has been really important. And it's also reduced distraction because you don't have people saying, well, what about X? I I think this is important to talk about at the board because they know that it's sort of being covered in a different board meeting um, or if you know they had an opportunity to make it a focus of the board when we read an agenda. Obviously, there are, there are exceptions, but it, it sort of increases discipline, which means that board meetings can be focused on one to two primary topics and we can have a more meaningful discussion rather than us trying to cover every function in the business um, at every board meeting. That then in turn gives senior leaders uh, the opportunity to engage with the board you know, once a year on average per um, a senior leader, which means that they, you know, they have the opportunity to expose themselves and their work to the board, which is helpful in um, when the board and, and, and the Renko Remuneration Committee, which is a subset of the, um, of the board, um, thinks about people's career development, um, promotion, pay, things like that. So the whole system sort of uh, feels like it works uh, for uh, both for our business, but then also for our board and, and its stewardship responsibilities. Aaron, let's um, let's talk about you. Um, I mean, you've been a hugely successful entrepreneur, and now you're on uh, your second job, being the CEO. You know, the jobs are very different at every stage. Um, how do you keep on reinventing yourself, and how do you keep on re-energizing yourself all the time? The reinvention is what drives the re-energizing. The fact that my job is very different each year to the previous year uh, gives me a constant source of energy. When I uh, look at my job this year, a lot of it has been around um, culture, um, you know, with COVID as like the biggest thing that's like happening in the world this year, maybe maybe in many years. Um, it's been around people and trying to... Um, keep my team spirits up and keep people and working effectively as we go through a lot of both like business change, but also broader societal change and, you know, being able to, to work flexibly with a lot of uncertainty um, over, you know, how the virus is going to develop from a like medical perspective, what that's going to mean for our team, for our customers, for, you know, regulatory considerations about how we can do business and, and needing to sort of scenario plan and be able to make decisions uh, very rapidly. So, I think if I was to look back at 2020, then that would be the big thing for this year. I think last year was around um, sort of process and um, and discipline and and trying to you know build a better approach to scaling in a in a way that's profitable and sort of sustainable in the long term. And um, the year before we did um, we did a, our biggest fundraise to date, which um, was obviously a big focus going through that process. When I look at next year, I think there are. A number of strategic paths the company can take and you know relative level of focus we put into international expansion for example versus um, category expansion versus um, 
sort of doubling down on on our core business and and really sort of um, accelerating our leadership um, journey there. And um, you know, we have uh, limited resources across the team and 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 at a, at a leadership level to be able to do all of those. So I think some of this. Um, sort of like prioritize decision making and, and discipline around decide, about deciding not only what we are doing but also what we're not doing is um seems like it's becoming a, a really important focus as we go into the next chapter so you know i think that the fact that my job therefore uh, is a different one of these things um, first and foremost each year uh means that i i continually find it um interesting and that you know the privilege and a great learning opportunity and I mean, this is a bit of an unfair question, but if you fast forward by 10, 20 years, what's the dream like for you personally? I guess from a um, like work perspective first, I very much hope that uh, I'm still in my current job. I think this is a, a huge privilege to, to run a business like this that's making people happy when, when they should be but aren't um, typically. And I think there's an opportunity for us to carry on and building our business out and, and hopefully being the world's leading uh, flower company by then. I think it's um, a huge privilege to, which you only get if you're the founder CEO, to to be able to assemble a team around you and to, to decide who all of those people are. And, you know, I've, I've crafted a team of people that I love working with at, at a senior level, but actually, you know, through the, the whole ranks of the company, become a time where I, I won't be involved in every hiring decision, but, um, you know, that's made it a, a brilliant experience getting to, to work with people that I enjoy working with and you know had a say on. I think from a from a sort of like non-work perspective, work is um, is super taxing and I work really hard, but I do think I've uh, I've been able to get my work-life balance better. I think um, becoming a parent um, has helped there. I've got uh, two little girls and um, my elder daughter uh, turned three a couple of months ago and. I have a six-month-old as well, so I think having something else that's felt even more important to me than work that I've forced myself to make time for, and which means I don't only think about work, and will near only think about work, has been really important in sort of like creating that balance in my life and realizing that um, perhaps somebody else can do something instead of me, or perhaps the thing that I'm doing can wait for the next day instead of happening, um, you know, today or now, and. I hope over time, as um, as my girls grow up, that uh, they'll continue to be a central part of my life and me there, so that we'll be able to spend more time together and that we'll be able to, to enjoy brilliant things as a family and they'll be able to give them a, a great upbringing, both in terms of like um, sort of, I guess, financial security and, um, you know, like the business being successful enough that I can provide for them, but also in terms of... Um, you know, having the time to be with them and to be a sort of active and hands-on dad and, and be there for not just like the big moments of their upbringing, but the, the little day-to-day -day things as well that, uh, that often really color like that parent-child relationship.